Hello and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favourite jewellery brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. For the season finale of the Great Women Artists podcast, we wanted to let you in on a little secret. This week, we're launching the Alighieri Sky, a capsule of one-of-a-kind diamond rings inspired by the stars and the celestial realms around us. Wishing you a very Merry Christmas and can't wait for the new year. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that today my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the renowned art historian and writer Rebecca K. Vandiver. With her work focusing on African-American artists, with a particular investment in the work of black women artists in the 20th century and beyond, Rebecca Vandiver is currently the Assistant Professor of African Art at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. A graduate of Harvard, where she obtained her bachelor's and master's, and then Duke University for her PhD, Vandiver has been a force writing, promoting, and lecturing on the work of black women artists. She is currently working on her second monograph, States of Emergency, The Politics of Ephemerality and African American Art. But the reason why we are speaking with Rebecca today is because she has just released her new book, Designing a New Tradition, Lois Maylu Jones and the Aesthetics of Blackness, released in October of this year on the trailblazing American artist Lois Maylu Jones, whose seven-decade career spanned from the 1930s right up until her death in 1998, and who you might have heard come up in previous Great Women Artists episodes as the teacher of Elizabeth Catlett at Howard University and the friend and colleague of Alma Thomas, who she would discuss painting with as part of the Little Paris group. More on that later, I'm sure. And that is why I'm so excited to say that today we will be discussing the great Lois Maylie Jones. Rebecca Van Diver, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm fabulous. And thank you so much for having me. I am an avid listener, so I am delighted to participate. And as I was 
telling you that this semester I've been teaching a class on women artists and your podcast uh, has been such a useful teaching tool. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. And Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on. It's such an honor to speak to you. So Lois Maylou Jones was such a force as a woman and as an artist, an educator working for over 47 years as a professor at Howard University and an artist working in painting, textile, collage and costume. I mean, her career spanned from the height of the Harlem Renaissance up until the late 1990s. I mean, her aesthetic is such an interesting one. It merges so many different cultures that reference her time spent in Paris, Haiti, and of course, living and working in such a vibrant community in Washington, D.C. I mean, whenever I look at her work, I feel totally encapsulated, whether that be by the tenderness and dignity of her figures or an admiration of the beauty and how she kind of claims back the African masks and textiles as so often adopted by the French modernists. So I just have to start off by asking you, how do you feel when you're in front of a Lois Miley Jones painting? I mean, I think it depends which one, right? <laughs> you just <Yes>. mentioned <laughs> sort of the myriad, the diversity of her practice. So I think a sense of excitement. You never know what Jones painting you're going to encounter when you step into a museum because she did work in such a variety of categories. But generally, <laughs> I'm very excited when I see them. More than anything, I want to get as close to the canvas as I possibly can. Because what marks a lot of her works as distinctive is the way in which they are so multi-layered. Because I want to understand how did she make this? How did she compose the work? What are the different pieces the work is comprised of? And I think that that's true even from her genre portraits of the 1940s, where you want to get up close and personal with the sitters and really be in their presence, to her collages of the 1960s, where you're literally trying to figure out how did she piece together this work of art. And I think that her work really invites close yeah. looking. Absolutely. Their experiences. I mean, can you tell us about one work maybe in particular, <laughs> since we have to narrow it down from so many, and why it affects you so much? So I have a hard time picking a favorite, but I think one of the ones that I'm always delighted to encounter is her Ubi Girl from the Thai region, which is at the Boston MFA. Yes. And I think because that composition is a vertical painting and it encapsulates so much of her aesthetic. It's done in 1972. So she is nearing her retirement. So she's born in 1905 in Boston, trains in Boston at the museum school associated with the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. So she, by 1970, has been working for a long amount of time. And that canvas uses her signature color. She's known for her use of bright and vibrant colors. It includes references to African art objects, to Black women. There's a beautiful photorealist head of a African woman who floats atop this really designed background. But again, it also has this multi-layered effect and you sort of want to get as close to the surface as you can. Absolutely. I love the idea of getting close up to her work. So I mean, when did you first discover her work? And was there a single painting that stood out for you? Oh, well, I was thinking I'd been listening to your lovely conversation with Melanie Herzog about Elizabeth oh, Catlett yes. and thinking about how when do you become aware of the artist's work? But then 
as Melanie was saying, when are you ready to work on the artist? Yes. And so yes. I first encountered Lois's work when I was an undergraduate at Harvard. And one of my professors had arranged for us to visit a prominent collector's home. And that collector had a Lois Melu Jones painting in his collection. Wow. I was unable to meet her. She dies in 1998. So it was one of those things where in the 2000s, I felt this immense sense of, oh my gosh, if I'd only had the forethought oh. to start earlier, I could have yeah. met her. And then as I really started to think about the issues within art history that I was interested in interrogating within the field of African-American art, which early on focused on uh, African-American artistic engagements with ideas of Africa. And Lois was always sort of mentioned in that mix due to her involvement with the Harlem Renaissance. And I always saw her 1938 painting, Les Fetiches, mentioned yes. and discussed and cited. So Le Fetiche is a vertical composition of um, five African masks that sort of uh, float on a black background. It has a sort of cubist surrealist feel to it, which is sort of in line with the fact that she produces it in Paris in the late 1930s. And so these masks are sort of overlapping and colliding into one another. In the collection now of the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C., it's always on view. And the painting is perhaps Lois's signature work. And the composition itself, it's not huge. So it's Probably, I'm, I'm like looking at my computer monitor to try to remember. Like, I'm like, okay, so that's 21 inches, basically the size, a little bit bigger than an iMac monitor. And so again, thinking about how I began with, you know, how her work really begs you to come closer. I mean, she, these are smaller scale paintings, uh, but there is so much going on within them. And I think it's fascinating that she paints them against this black background, sort of devoid of any cultural context, which would have referred to the way in which she would have encountered them in the museums, in galleries, in Paris. Absolutely. So Lois Melu jones was born in Boston in 1905, you just mentioned. I mean, to Thomas Vreeland and Carolyn Jones. Can you tell us about her childhood and who were her family? So her parents were new to the region. They'd moved from New Jersey up to Boston, the turn of the century. But Carolyn's grandmother in particular played a key role in Lois's life. Her Maternal grandmother was one of the first Black landowners on Martha's Vineyard, and the family would spend summers on the island, and it became a really important part of Lois's artistic and personal life. In Boston, the Jones family was very ambitious. They were professionally oriented. Her father was the first Black graduate of Suffolk Law School in 1915, oh, yes, and he graduated at age 41. And so he set sort of that model for Lois and her older brother. And her mother, too, was an active cosmetologist who had a booming business in Boston. Wow. And then on Martha's oh Vineyard. Yes, there's a beautiful painting that Lois paints called My Mother's Hats. You just get oh, this wow. sense of this woman who <laughs> she looked up to with these beautiful hats. So wow, the Jones family moved to Boston. They were active in the political and social scene. They were middle to upper middle class, and they made every effort to afford Lois and her brother every opportunity. They were very encouraging of Lois's artistic pursuits. She often would recount uh, receiving a set of 
crayons and watercolors at age seven from her parents. So that was something um, (laughs) that they were in support of. I mean, I think precocious would be a a really great adjective to describe Lois. So they were very in the mix. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting you should say Martha's Vineyard because am I right in thinking, again, this is the kind of dawn of the Harlem Renaissance and she knew people like Dorothy West and Meta Warwick Fuller, who was this, I don't know if anyone's heard of her, but please look her up. She's an absolutely fantastic sculptor who studied with Rodin in Paris. Yeah. And so Meta Warwick Fuller, as you mentioned, was someone who Lois met on Martha's Vineyard and who offered some counsel to Lois as she was sort of figuring out her young adulthood and what she wanted to do. And Meta Warwick Fuller had arrived in Boston after she gets married. Uh, She's already sort of established in the art scene. She's already been to Paris. So she is one who encourages Lois Milo Jones as a teenager to think about going to Paris to further her education. And she really is encouraging uh, Lois Jones to go and study with Henry Osawa Tanner, with whom Meta Warwick Fuller had also studied uh, while she was in Paris. So Meta Warwick Fuller as a sort of like an artistic mentor, although they didn't have sort of a formal yeah. mentorship. <laughs> Quite a yeah, good one. Yeah, someone who, yeah, right. Not bad, not bad. Um, someone who- Only the leading sculptor of the yeah, day. Yeah, <laughs> someone who Lois would have been aware of. And then her relationship with Dorothy West is fascinating too, because they were really childhood playmates. The Wests oh. and the Joneses shared a duplex for a few years on Martha's Vineyard during the summers. And so Dorothy West and- Lois grew up together. And it's interesting to me how Lois goes on to make her mark in the visual arts and Dorothy West goes on to make her mark in the literary arts of the Harlem Renaissance. And there's this great quote from Lois when she is given an award from the Studio Museum in Harlem in which she describes how she's the last living artist of the Harlem Renaissance and Dorothy West was the last author. Oh my gosh, wow. Again, both so precocious. <laughs> gosh, that like Martha's Vineyard must have been kind of just brimming with both culture and intellect. So I mean, she already has her first exhibition when she's just 17. And then she earns a four-year scholarship to study design at Boston School of MFA. Tell us about her artistic education. Do you think this was always something she wanted to pursue? I do think it was something that she always wanted to pursue. When she was a high school student, she had taken vocational drawing classes at the Museum of Fine Arts. She ends up enrolling at the museum school associated with the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, I think in part because she was given a scholarship that she was reawarded each year. So she was able to go fully funded. She was interested in pursuing a career. She originally wanted to be a textile designer uh, and decided to abandon textile design after she realized that textiles were produced without the designer's name attached to it. And so I think more than anything, (laughs) I think she wanted her name to go down in history and in particular art history. And so she was really adept at navigating artistic spaces and figuring out how to best position herself there. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so glad we're doing this. We better do her justice. Gosh. So, I mean, these early textile works are absolutely beautiful. I mean, she does these designs for Creton fabric, which are these beautiful kind of vibrant works. I mean, can you tell us about how she's kind of experimenting with design and how this leads to her work in painting? Yeah. So the Museum of Fine Arts Boston has a very strong 
textile collection, in particular Asian textiles. And so if we look at her practice, we do see from her time at the museum school that she did spend a lot of time with the Asian textiles doing some copying. Because in order to be successful as a textile designer, you really have to understand color and you have to understand pattern. And so what I see happening in these early textile designs is that she really is developing her skill as a colorist. As you mentioned, with the example from 1928, these sort of beautiful, vibrant, rich colors, and that one in particular, there's almost a cerulean blue. So contemporary yeah, as well. Yeah, very modern. I think they feel fresh. Yeah, yeah. And so that interest in design weaves its way through all of her paintings because she's always interested in color and in space and how to create works that sort of harmonize with one another. So she then does a year of postgraduate study, and she really did think that she was going to become a textile designer. She sold some work to various textile houses. She has an exhibition of her textile designs in New York City in the summer of 1928. But she frequently would recount this event in which she saw while driving to the Cape, a furniture showroom in which she saw a piece of furniture covered in a fabric that she had designed. And she was disheartened (laughs) to go in there and realize that there was no way for her to sort of stake a claim to it, right? It existed in the world without her name attached to it. And that was really a turning point for her where she decided, okay, I'm going to switch gears and move away from textile design. Totally. I mean, and am I right to think that at this time around sort of 1927, 28, she was also applying for teaching roles as well? Yeah. So after she graduates from the museum school she needed to find a job as we all do when we're finishing (laughs) up and she originally had wanted to stay in Boston and teach at the museum school but the museum school told her that they didn't have any positions available and I think it's important to remember that although we think of Boston as a progressive city there still was a sense that african americans should go quote unquote down south to help their people and that's what she was told by her instructors at the the museum wow. school that they didn't have anything for her there but that she should go down south so it was also at that moment that she meets charlotte hawkins brown who was fundraising for the palmer memorial institute in sedalia north carolina And Brown basically recruits her to come teach at Palmer Memorial Institute. So she found herself after graduating, leaving Boston behind. Her letters reveal that she bought sort of a snappy little sports car and drove down, which I just love that that picture of, you know, a young Lois. She sounds amazing. uh, Her little sports car (laughs) heading down the highway to North Carolina. Uh, And so she moves to Sedalia, North Carolina, and she is living on campus. And she's teaching art classes. She's also coaching the basketball team while she's there. A what? Yes, yeah. <laughs> she was actually an avid athlete. She played a lot of tennis. She coached basketball. Oh she's so much more than I yeah. even said in the introduction. <laughs> so she's there for about two years. And I think it's also something to note that her family had moved to Boston from New York. She didn't have any 
Southern relatives. So when we hear a lot of the histories of prominent African-American artists, I'm thinking of Ramir Bearden. They tell these stories about going home, being sent home to the South for their summers, where they're exposed to a different African-American experience. For Lois, this was all new to her. She had never encountered that before. And I think it would be safe to say that when she first got there, she turned her nose up a little bit at what she was encountering. Yeah. But I mean, then in 1930, she was personally invited by the director of the school, James Herring, to join the art department at Howard University. I mean, this is the most prestigious black university and the centre of black intellectualism in particular at the US at the time. I mean, you know, when we're talking about Elizabeth Catlett being there, she was saying that, you know, W.E. Dubois used to come and talk and all these huge figures in the Harlem Renaissance. This was the centre of sort of black intellectualism. Definitely. So... Lois actually had applied for a job at Howard in 1928 and not gotten it. <gasps> oh, God. <laughs> so again, she wouldn't have liked that. Yeah, again, like I said, she was very... Don't put that in the book. ...aware of what was happening, where she wanted to be, who she should be connected to. And so James V. Herring had gone to one of her classes and then actually helped her break her contract to get to Howard, right? So she was beholden to Palmer Memorial Institute. And so Herring is instrumental in helping her figure out how to get out of her teaching contract there so that she can come to Howard, which, as you said, in the 1930s and beyond was really the place for African-American art. So she sort of stepped onto hallowed ground uh, into the classroom there in 1930. And she stays on the faculty at Howard until 1977. So it's the start of a lengthy relationship. But I mean, her alumni who she teaches is just so incredible. Did she teach Alma Thomas as well? So Alma Thomas is the first graduate of the fine arts department at Howard. And Thomas graduates in 1924. So she has left the department just a few years prior But Thomas, as we know from that wonderful interview you did with Bridget Cooks, that Thomas stays in D.C. So she actually, um, Thomas took a job just about a half a mile south from uh, Howard's campus. And Thomas remained very much in the mix. So Lois and Alma were friends. In fact, someone was just telling me that Lois and Alma were hard playing drinking buddies, but I don't know, have anything to confirm that. That doesn't make it into the book, but that's, you know, what people said. I know. I just love that idea of seeing the two of them playing gin rummy with their cocktails. They both sound so fun. So she doesn't teach Alma Thomas, but um, as you do allude, the Department of Art attracted Uh, what we we could consider now sort of a who's who of African-American art history. Elizabeth Catlett is there in the 1930s. We then have David Driscoll, who is a a student of hers in the 1950s, and so many more. Oh my gosh, amazing. What a sort of place for just a boom of culture. I mean, I've read that, you know, she communicated to more than 2,500 students in her 47-year career, which is just absolutely phenomenal. But I mean, you know, this was the early 1930s. She lived in Washington, obviously, during the term time, but spent her summers in New York. I mean, this was the height of the Harlem Renaissance. Can you tell us a bit about the Harlem Renaissance and also a bit of context about what that place was like for women? That's a wonderful question. So the Harlem Renaissance is the period that we associate with the 1920s, named for the upper Manhattan neighborhood of Harlem to describe this moment of sort of intense Black cultural production and expression in all creative fields, in literature, in theater, in music, in 
the visual arts. And so while it's named the Harlem Renaissance, it really had global dimensions and stretched well beyond sort of the limit of that upper Manhattan neighborhood. But as you said, Lois finds herself in the middle, as she often did. And so Howard must have offered some sort of tuition assistance because she's there in the summer months where she is, according to society pages, going to events for Aaron Douglas, for Claude McKay and others. In 1928, she has an exhibition of her textile designs at a very popular tea house coffee shop venue. So she is exhibiting her work, going to parties, socializing and partaking in all that has to offer. The Harlem Renaissance sort of gets its name because of sort of the bustling jazz clubs in the neighborhood that were so attractive to people of all races at that particular moment. But as I said, sort of stretches beyond New York to Philadelphia, to Detroit, to Chicago, to Boston. And so Lois, I think, coming up for the summers was an opportunity for her to really immerse herself in a different environment. Her friend Dorothy West is in New York at that time, who had a stint with Porgy and Bess, the musical. And, and I would love to know more about what that was like for her. <laughs> Sometimes I joke, I'm like, oh, I just want to be in a, a fly on the wall or sort of like stuck yes. on her luggage so I can travel around with her and the ask Budapest questions. Your question about sort of what it was like for a woman during the Harlem Renaissance, I think that there's been a lot of work done recently to expand the boundaries of who we consider to be participants in the Harlem Renaissance because women couldn't travel as freely as men at that time, right? So if we think about the Harlem Renaissance as being limited to, oh, you had to live in New York, we miss out on all of these people who would have passed through or who would have been interacting with the key figures, but not actually in the city itself. So I think that the question of gender and the Harlem Renaissance is one that has been taken up by scholars who are interested in sort of understanding how being a woman at that moment presented a unique set of obstacles that they had to overcome. Yeah, I know. It's just such an interesting time because it's just so vibrant. And, you know, you have people like Augusta Savage, Elizabeth Catlett passing through and then running classes in community centers and teaching and everything. It's just absolutely amazing. So, I mean, the work that she's starting to make at this time is really interesting. You know, we see works like The Ascent of Ethiopia in 1932. When did she start to sort of get interested in this idea of a sort of African aesthetic and African mask? So that is a great question. <laughs> One that's hard to sort of pin down the start to. She was most definitely aware of the writings of Elaine Locke, who was one of the gatekeepers of the Harlem Renaissance. In the 1920s and the 1930s, Elaine Locke is promoting what we might call sort of an embrace of African art on the part of African American artists, in part because the European modernist Picasso and his group achieved such success uh, with their appropriation of African aesthetics. So works like the 1932 Ascent of Ethiopia really in literal terms sort of represent her initial negotiation of African themes in her work. I think as we move beyond 1932, her understanding becomes more nuanced and less one-dimensional. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's so interesting about this time as well is that she goes to Paris between 1937 and 1938. I mean, 
first of all, just to sort of wind things back as well, Paris for key players in the Harlem Renaissance, like, you know, James Baldwin, obviously Augusta Savage went there as well. I mean, so many of these artists were going to Paris who were kind of involved in that Harlem Renaissance. I mean, why was this? Well, I think Paris is a rite of passage for all modern artists, right? It's yeah. always been in a place that American artists of all races have all always sought to seek refuge. So I think in some ways that isn't unexpected for an artist. I think that for African-American visual artists in particular, Paris held appeal because you have someone like Henry Osawa Tanner who immigrates to Paris and is there and is widely yeah. seen as sort of the grandfather of African-American art. And so sort of this pilgrimage that you would make to come and sit at his feet and be mentored by him. So Lois receives a sabbatical grant, which allows her to spend the year in Paris, and so goes thinking that she's going to get to meet Henry Osawa Tanner, and he unfortunately dies just before she arrives. So oh, she no. disembarks in September. She does sort of follow in his footsteps by deciding to enroll at the Académie Julienne, which is also where Tanner studied. So she is there from 1937 to 1938, and it is the first of what becomes several pivotal transformation moments in her aesthetic in her career she becomes a devoted francophile and returns to france quite frequently throughout the rest of her life but that year in paris in 1937 is critical in her beginning to understand who she was as an artist so she's taking classes at the academy julienne it was sort of your standard European art school in terms of life classes and drawing classes. And while she's there, she meets Celine Tarberry, who would become one of her closest confidants. Uh, and in fact, Tarberry, oh, yes, of course. Tarberry is key to Lois because when Lois arrives in France, she doesn't speak French. And so oh, yes. Lois arrives in Paris in September of 1937. One of her Howard colleagues uh, from the Department of Romance Languages meets her. She lives in the West Bank for the first month and then moves into her own studio in October of 1937. So when she's in Paris, she is at the Académie Julienne. Lois also befriends Albert Alexander Smith, who was an African-American expatriate artist living in Paris. And Albert Alexander Smith and Jones form a unique relationship in which she does confide in him some of her fears about returning to the United States after this time in Paris. You had asked earlier about what made Paris so appealing to African-American artists. And as I said, on the one hand, it was sort of a rite of passage of all modern artists. For African-American artists, they also oftentimes returned and reported feeling free from the sort of racial prejudice that plagued the United States, that they found that their time in France allowed them a greater sense of freedom. That's not to say that France doesn't have its own challenges around racism, but that's just Lois herself would quote that uh, she felt loosed from the shackles of race, end quote, while she was in Paris. So I think that there was this appeal um, to be seen as an artist full stop while there that a lot of African-American artists found appealing. So she was really reticent to return to the United States. Uh, while she's in Paris, she adopts the Impressionist style. She's painting on plein air. Oh, wow. And so what happens then when she returns to the United States? 
When she returns to the United States in 1938, she becomes reacquainted with Elaine Locke, who at that point was assembling an artist to include in a forthcoming publication and also for an exhibition he was helping curate at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Locke and Jones have a series of conversations in which Locke encourages her to embrace the Black experience in her paintings and to focus attention on those elements, right? To sort of move away from the decorative and to really make these works that were embodying the Black experience. As a result, what we see happening in her work from the late 1930s and 1940s is a real interest in portraits and in particular portraits of Black individuals. I argue that that interest actually predates the conversation with Locke, yeah. but that we oftentimes think of the 1940s rather as her Locke period because she does produce a number of these solitary portraits of sometimes famous African-Americans or African-descended individuals, sometimes people she's literally found on the street and had um, come sit in her studio. And so while she's back in the U.S., uh, Celine comes back with her and they form the little Paris studio. Oh, wow. With Alma. And Alma becomes an ember. <laughs> yep. So in the little Paris studio uh, was sort of their creation or their desire to form a Parisian style salon in D.C. It catered primarily to other working artists. Significantly, a lot of the artists who were affiliated with the group of which Alma Thomas uh, is one of them were not necessarily employed as artists during their day job. So a lot of them had federal government jobs. And so the Paris group was an opportunity for these artists to get together to critique their work. Um, they have two exhibitions in the early 1950s. But again, this desire to forge a community of Black artists at a moment where we have to remember that Washington, D.C. is still segregated. So it's this desire to claim space and create space for artistic production. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at this time, her portraits are just, I mean, some of them are highly emotional, like mob victim meditation. And then we have people like, you know, Jenny from 1943, which is, I think, maybe my favorite painting by her. It's this absolutely beautiful woman. I mean, she looks like she's in a sort of domestic setting. It's all yellow. Mm -hmm. I mean, she, the way that she's constructed it in full yellow, I mean, it's just beautiful. That is such a stunning, stunning painting. And I think that the way these works are really dignified. I think she gives a lot of dignity to yes. her sitters, even in these yes. very quiet moments. So in that painting yes. that we're discussing, Jenny from 1943, which is in the collection of the Howard University Art Gallery, the young girl is shown skinning some fish wearing this yellow dress. She's looking down. She's not looking out at you as the viewer. And you're brought into this moment, into this scene. And we get a sense of her as a whole person, even though we're just looking at her in this sort of two-dimensional medium. There's a great story that goes along with that painting because Lois had met the girl and had painted her in her studio. And later, the sitter 
returned to Howard, saw the painting on view, identified herself as the Jenny in the picture, and then wanted to bring the painting home with her, thought that the painting was hers. Oh my gosh. (laughs) This idea of like what happens when you're the sitter, but you don't actually own the artwork. And then again, you mentioned her mob victim from 1944, where she had found that man walking on U Street, brought him to her studio. And thinking about how do you... How do you visualize that moment of lynching? How do you sort of grapple with that in a sensitive way? And I think that her painting, which is titled Meditation, subtitled Mob Victim, is really a meditation on that, this sort of quiet moment of introspection on the part of the man who's pictured in the portrait yeah absolutely I mean there's just such a sort of tenderness to her work I mean both Jenny and meditation the figures feel like they're in their own world in a way you know they're sort of preoccupied and she's just kind of almost looking at them quite voyeuristically as well I mean they're just beautifully painting I mean the 50s is going to take her to Haiti I mean why was this I mean because we see her work it's very sort of impressionist like and then she goes to Haiti and she marries a Haitian man in 1954 and I write her thinking who she had been corresponding with for 20 years at that point So in 1953, Lois marries a Haitian graphic designer by the name of Pierre Verganard-Noel. And she had met him in the 1930s when she was in New York, and he was also in New York. They had corresponded, kept loosely in touch. He supposedly just showed up on her doorstep in Washington, D.C. Lois was, in fact, engaged to another man at the time. Breaks oh my gosh, off her engagement and marries Virgin Noel. They are then separated for a brief period of time due to visa issues. So it's in that part of the separation that Lois actively seeks out a way to get to Haiti to be with him. So she ends up first traveling there in the summer of 1954. And just as her trip to Paris in 1937 sort of initiated an aesthetic change in her practice when she gets to Haiti. Then she'll travel there pretty much every summer up until the 1960s. And then eventually she establishes a studio in Port-au-Prince and spends about six months a year uh, in the 1970s onward living in Haiti. She becomes fascinated by Haitian culture and in particular Haitian voodoo practices And so we begin to see this move from overt representational art to the more abstract. And I trace that in the book, particularly in her interest in collages. But we can also see this move in her market scenes that she paints from the period of the 1950s and 1960s, which begin to be infused with these bright colors. Wow. And I mean, at this point in her career as well, I mean, was she starting to gain much recognition? So she was slow and steady in sort of gaining (laughs) traction, I would say. She was someone who kept her eyes on the prize from the very beginning. And like I said, at the outset, she really did want her name to go down in the history books. (laughs) So she was constantly maneuvering to get herself into the history books. So in the 1930s was a participant in the Harmon Foundation awards and exhibitions, which made her well known within the sort of African American art circle. In the 1940s, she was more known within sort of the local Washington 
art scenes. Uh, in the 1960s, she is expanding her reach a little bit. She becomes part of the diplomatic set in Washington, D.C., In 1955, Eisenhower, then president, commissions her to make a pair of portraits of the then sitting Haitian presidents on their 1955 visit to the United States. So she is on the scene, let's say. But again, she's constantly (laughs) sending her work out to juried exhibitions, trying to get her work included in these larger retrospectives. But it's really not until the 70s that she becomes established in mainstream art circles. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that actually some of her white friends had to submit paintings on behalf of her? Exactly. So Celine Tarberry would sometimes take works to various institutions and drop them off so that they couldn't identify Lois as being a Black artist. She would also sometimes just ship her works places so that that way there wasn't a risk of being racially profiled and then denied access to the exhibitions. So that's, I think, an interesting tension, right? So there is a burgeoning African-American art scene with really important exhibitions that are taking place. And so Jones is participating in winning awards there, but it's not until later on in her career that she begins to have her work acquired and shown in sort of mainstream museums like the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, where I began by talking about the UB girl. Absolutely. So, I mean, the 1960s, so much was going on in terms of the civil rights movement, boom of sort of capitalism, the Cold War. I mean, so much is going on in this decade. I mean, was she reacting to anything from this particular decade at all with her work, do you think? She was a quiet observer, I think, of the civil rights movement. Again, living in Washington in that moment, I mean, it must have been impossible to ignore. There's a lovely watercolor she did of the March on Washington from 1963. Her archive reveals that she was keeping abreast of the situations as they related specifically to the art world. At Howard, the civil rights movement in the 1960s led to some pretty dramatic calls for change from the student body who really wanted Howard to sort of refocus its orientation as a Black university. So where Jones was not overt in speaking out, what I do think that she tried to do was to direct her research agenda in such a way to meet the needs and the demands of the students during this period. So she's not in the trenches with some of her students who would report about how they leave campus and go to a march. But she was, I think, on the sidelines trying to participate as best she could. There are a few examples of artwork that she does or that she produces in which she directly engages with the ongoing uh, racial crisis. So for example, her Challenge America, a collage work she does in 1964, in which she directly comments on what's happening by sort of piecing together these beautiful penny round portraits of prominent African-American figures and leaders, uh, and then newspaper clippings. If you look closely at that work, there's newspaper clippings that say Mississippi burning. There's a photo of Malcolm X. There's also references to NASA's space exploration. So she's in the moment. I think that something to 
consider is the weight we place on politicized artwork of the period and how I think one of the reasons why Lois has been maybe overlooked in terms of her production at that moment is because she's not making art that is in service of the struggle for Black liberation. Elizabeth Catlett, as your conversation with Melanie illuminated, is interested in sort of forging political solidarity from her position in Mexico with these African-American audiences in the 1960s and the 1970s that are becoming increasingly engaged with the struggle for Black liberation. And I think that Lois is interested in those ideas. I think she's also born in 1905 in the 1960s and 1970s, is of an older generation and sort of finds herself beginning to be pushed out uh, of the department at Howard because she just isn't doing that kind of work. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, what's so beautiful about her work is the fact that she's constantly kind of renewing the aesthetic. And, you know, we go through so many different phases in her life where we get to the sort of 70s. It's just fantastic. All these different sort of textiles going on and the paintings. I mean, it looks so fresh and so sort of modern for then. For sure, for sure. So in 1970 finally realizes her dream of traveling to the African continent. And I see those trips really beginning to allow her to synthesize all of her interests that she's been pursuing over the course of her career. And so those canvases that she makes in the 1970s onward, I think are exactly as you described, they feel very fresh, they feel very modern, they're very bright and colorful. And she is really weaving together all of these different influences, many of them characterized by these highly decorative designed backgrounds, right, where she clearly is referencing yeah. her training as a textile designer. A lot of them include references to Black women, both African American and African descended, and references to African art objects. When we get to the 1970s, she's also working on a little bit larger of a scale in a lot of the work. So when I mentioned that Lefetiche is roughly the size of an iMac monitor turned vertically, the canvases that she produces from the 1970s onward are a little bit bigger than that. And so they feel different and they feel flatter in the sense she's using acrylic in a lot of them, these very crisp lines with these bright colors and these objects that have been superimposed. They're just fascinating to look at. And she produces a lot of them in that moment. She's also moving towards retirement. Uh, she retires from Howard in 1977. Yeah, I mean, these works are just incredible. I love, you know, Moon Mask from 1971 is just so electric. I mean, they're just so kind of poppy as well. And I can imagine sort of like emulating the fashions of the day as well. But I mean, you know, post-retirement, I mean, nothing really slows her down because she's constantly kind of honoured with more and more awards, which I can kind of imagine that she was just thrilled about. I mean, not only do Howard, you know, give her this incredible retrospective of her work, but I mean, in 1993, I mean, she's sort of honoured by Bill Clinton. <laughs> who's president. 
<laughs> so as her career sort of wanes, she has this incredible wave of recognition. So you're absolutely right. So she's given this retrospective at Howard in 1980. President Carter gives her an achievement award where she's at the White House. So she does begin to achieve all of these awards on the national level. In fact, I just got a real estate alert listing that there's a Lois Mealy Jones Alley in Washington, D.C. So she had, oh my at gosh. some point had a wow. after her that was for sale. <laughs> That's fantastic. And isn't there a Lois Mealy Jones Day declared in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> yeah, 1984. She has a day, July 29th. We should have had this conversation on July 29th. Oh, you I'll have together. to release you it again know. on July 29th. <laughs> so she is beginning to sort of collect these accolades, which was definitely affirming for her. And I think she gives a series of interviews in which she really is vocal about the challenges that she faced as a Black woman artist in the 20th century and how she felt that her race and her gender combined worked against her as she sort of tried to make her way through the art world. Her students would continually fly her flag in 1976 when David Driscoll curates his groundbreaking exhibition, Two Centuries of African-American Art at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, which is sort of one of the first major surveys, he includes her in it. So has the 1976 show at LACMA. I don't think we talked about her 1973 show at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. She's the first African-American woman to have a show there, which I think is fantastic considering she is from Boston. And so she's sort of continually collecting these awards. She goes on what I consider to be sort of a victory lap in 1990 when she has a major traveling exhibition of her work and she's lecturing and is really seen as an elder within the field. And she sadly dies of a heart attack in 1998. So she had such a long life. Being born in 1905 and dying in 1998, having a life and a career that really spans the entirety of the 20th century, I think is what makes her such a compelling individual to think about how does one become an artist? How does one become an African-American woman artist and persevere and be so prolific and leave such an indelible mark on the history of American art? And what were the challenges that she encountered, but what were her successes? And to think about not only her legacy as an artist in her own right, but also as an educator and a teacher of so many significant African-American artists who passed through her classes at Howard. So yeah, there's just so much to say. <laughs> well, Rebecca, thank you so much for this just incredibly insightful conversation about Lois Milo Jones. I'm sure that we've done her proud <laughs> and insert her into the art historical canon. But as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if you could be transported back to Paris with Lois Maley Jones, or perhaps you could speak to her right now. Would there be anything that you would say to her or you would ask her? Oh my goodness, that's such a great question. I would love to understand her 
politics more explicitly. I'd love to know more about what strategies she had to devise to cope with the discrimination that she faced as a woman artist. I think about, you know, how do you deal with rejection? And so I wonder what does she think would have been different if she had been recognized earlier? What would have shifted? Fantastic. Rebecca Van Dyver, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening to the 52nd episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Rebecca Van Diver on the trailblazing Lois Melu Jones. I'm absolutely fascinated by Lois's fantastic and such extensive and wide-ranging career as told by Rebecca and urge you all to look up her work. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode marks the finale of season four, but we will be back in the new year with more fantastic interviews for season five. I hope you all have a wonderful, restful break and I can't thank you enough for listening to the podcast this year. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Laura Hendry and if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.